Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Ian Drake with the New Books Network. I'm a professor of political science and jurisprudence at Montclair State University in New Jersey, and I'm joined today by Michael J. Mazar. He is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. He previously served as a professor of national security strategy and an associate dean at the U.S. National War College in Washington, D.C. He joins us today to talk about his new book, Leap of Faith, Hubris, Negligence, and America's Greatest Foreign Policy Tragedy. Uh, Mr. Mazar, thanks so much uh, for joining us on the New Books Network. Delighted to be with you. So this is a history of the policy uh, debate and planning of the U.S.-Iraq war from 2003, and uh, you have a considerable amount of, it seems, uh, new primary source material that you used in this. Um, is What is it that makes you want to publish this history at this point in time? Uh, well, part of the issue is, you know, I've been working on it for quite some time, so uh, it kind of got finished when it got finished. But I think it is, uh, it ends up being timely in the sense that um, there are a, a number of, that sort of learning a lesson of how the country can get into war uh, without a few years beforehand really having a, a sense that it would be a good idea or necessary uh, is an important lesson to learn given a number of the crises and foreign policy challenges that we're facing today and the nature of U.S. foreign policy today. So I think that the lessons ended up being uh, even more timely today than they would have been, say, I think in the middle of the Obama administration or something where the um, the lessons of Iraq were pretty seriously discussed and, and definitely influenced policy. You begin with a reference to your sources, and this is in terms of text. It's a little over 400 pages, and um, copious footnoting. You refer to a lot of interviews that you conducted by uh, referencing the interviewee by number. Right. And so um, you describe these people as senior policy uh, people. Can you explain who they are for listeners in, in order to understand who these anonymous interviewees are? And this is really the new evidence you're, you're using uh, in addition to previously published materials, but uh, you're using a lot of interviews that have never been published before that are, have been done solely with you. And so can you explain what kinds of people you're interviewing? So, yeah, I mean, the, the anonymity came uh, partly uh, from uh, although I did most of the research on my own time, I was working at the National Defense University at the time. And as you know, in a university setting, if you're going to do interviews with people, you have to go through um, uh, what's called an institutional review board that uh, is designed to, to make sure that the human subjects that are involved in research are protected. And because I started this work just a couple of years, a few years after the war began, the Bush administration was still in office. Um, we weren't even to the Iraq surge yet. 
there was a there was a feeling that uh, protecting sources made it uh, very important to preserve anonymity. Today, if I were starting it all over again, I don't think that would be the case. But at the time, that was a condition that was sort of imposed on me by the um, uh, the human subjects protection considerations. So the the research I did just about sort of a hundred formal interviews. Um, the way I sort of describe it is um, I, I did not interview any of the big five. So Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Powell, or Rice. Um, I interviewed some other um, uh, cabinet level officials. And from the next level down, from sort of deputy secretary on down, um, interviewed, uh, I, I'd say, a, a reasonable sampling of people at all levels down to kind of at the lower end, you know, colonels that were working in the field or in planning shops, uh, USAID officials who were working uh, in Iraq. So basically from apart from the, the, the most senior five of the war cabinet uh, down to folks in the field, there's kind of a sampling of people all along that. And as I say, when in the book I use the term uh, former senior official or senior official at the time, I'm really referring to that designation refers to people who were at least a, a deputy assistant secretary or above. And so you name a lot of people, of course, uh, in, in your narrative. And this is a narrative history. It starts in the 1990s and it goes through the early months of the war. Um, are just for clar- clarification, are some of the people that you're referring to by name also people that you interviewed? Um, well, inevitably, that's going to be the case. But, you know, as I say, in order to, to remain faithful to the anonymous interviewee approach, um, you know, basically, I can't I, I don't want to say more than that. But given sure. g- given the number of people involved, uh, clearly just in since the book basically describes every senior official or, or names almost every senior official in some way from secondary sources, inevitably there's going to be some overlap. Yeah. Sure. Um, do you think, and just another process question here uh, before we start talking about the substance, um, do you think that um, there, there's always a problem with oral histories? Uh, sometimes memories are bad. Uh, sometimes memories are selective. Um, so in regard to a particular event like this, which was obviously, I assume at at least some of the points at which you were interviewing these people, it was a obviously controversial decision, uh, even at the time you were uh, discussing it with them. So how were you able to um, balance what you thought might be manipulative or selective memory or even false memory uh, with the stuff that you thought was uh, insightful and uh, informative. Yeah, so a few a few ways. Um, I mean, broadly speaking, uh, kind of used the typical journalistic approach of trying to have more than one source for key things. So, for a number of, of uh, events or issues that I describe in some detail, such as particular warning memos that are written, or the story of the Free Iraqi Forces, or other kinds of stories of, of significant events in this process. Um, I've got, you know, talked to multiple people in some cases, you know, like 10 different people who were involved in some way with um, those processes and, you know, obviously sort of uh, compare and contrast the stories I was hearing. Um, There are some very 
sort of smaller individual anecdotes uh, that come from a single person. But they're, you know, my judgment is in in most cases, those are kind of fun and interesting, but they're not things that if they turn out to be somewhat misremembered, they don't particularly alter the story. But the biggest answer, I think, is just, uh, and this is, I will say, sort of as I went through this process, uh, my own reactions shifted or sort of moved around a bit. Uh, but the biggest issue in that regard is making some big overall judgments about the nature of the decision, um, the character of the decision makers, their motivations and intent. Um, and that's really a product of putting all of the interviews together and trying to, uh, to see if, uh, there are, you know, broad themes and conclusions that, as the author, seem to me to make sense. You know, seem to be uh, uh, the right interpretation of the events. So the biggest answer to your question is just looking at multiple remembrances, comparing it then, obviously, with a documentary record. I mean, there haven't been a lot of uh, uh, U.S. Uh, documents released compared to British ones, but still between the two, I can, you know, you can get some sense and compare that with what you're hearing from people. Um, the Woodward books are helpful from, you know, in terms of the early phases to, to get some other interviews with very senior people to compare. So just getting a lot of different sources of information um, and trying to make sure that my judgments are not grounded in one possibly inaccurate or misleading memory. So jumping into the substance of the book, you begin this not with George W. Bush's administration, but rather his father's in uh, the early 1990s and the lead up to the Gulf War. Why is the 1990s uh, particularly important in understanding the post 9-11 lead up to the uh, Iraq war? Yeah, that's a great question. A good, a good question to start with. It's it's absolutely essential because uh, during the 1990s, uh, the United various U.S. administrations build uh, both the conviction uh, about the danger that Saddam poses uh, and the public narrative about the threat of Iraq that create a context in which when the Bush administration comes along and begins talking about this, it doesn't seem crazy. It doesn't seem insane. Um, both in terms of, uh, obviously the perception of Iraq's WMD programs, and we can get into that, but basically, you know, uh, folks of both political parties, professional intelligence people, professional military people, there were definitely dissenters and doubters, but the overwhelming perception that emerges in the 1990s, beginning with that episode right at the end of the Gulf War, where we discovered that Iraq was further along toward a nuclear program than anybody assumed. The 1990s are a period where uh, that conviction of Iraq's WMD ambitions uh, really settles into place. And then that's combined then with the sort of post-Cold War uh, U.S. conception of its role as the primary power in the world uh, that uh, and the conduct of a number of operations in the Balkans and Haiti and Somalia and elsewhere. They have different lessons, but they're all part of a general theme that the United States has arrived at a point where it can go police up the world's problems. So the 90s are an essential uh, period to understanding why not just the Bush administration, but the entire American, the Congress, much of the media, uh, public opinion 
was all in favor of doing this, or at least willing to accept doing this by the time that it happened. Okay, so uh, the 1990s uh, begin in terms of Iraq and U.S. relations with the um, Hussein government. You, you don't really go into much detail about Iraq history pre-1990s, but basically in the 1980s, Iraq and Iran have been in a long war. Um, and it that war ends, and Iraq starts to look elsewhere to expand essentially is and and have we ever had a clear understanding of what Iraq's goals were if they were to successfully have taken over Kuwait uh no and this gets to your point about uh bad memories or misleading memories of course we end up uh having Saddam Hussein in custody for several months uh, after he's captured in late 2003 and uh, those, uh, there, there's a lot of great material from, from both an FBI and a CIA interviewer who worked with him, uh, and, and multiple published sources of, uh, the perspectives that he gave, uh, a number of declassified documents that are transcripts of those interviews. Um, so, you know, I think his story is that, the United States at the time obviously was concerned that he was going to continue going. He was going to try to take over Saudi Arabia. The Saudis were very concerned about that. Uh, his story, I believe, is that that's an exaggeration, that his resentment was particularly against Kuwait because of its role in depressing oil prices and arguably stealing some of his oil through slant drilling and things like that. So Saddam's conception of himself is certainly as this uh, sort of, regional leader and that everybody should give deference to him. But his conception of himself is also as someone who's aggrieved. And in many cases, when he lashes out, when he conducts his aggression, it's against enemies that he believes has wronged him somehow. He doesn't necessarily see himself as, uh, as in the case of many tyrants, doesn't see himself as uh, the source of the aggression. Uh, so I don't think um, anybody has a really clear idea of uh, suppose he were left relatively unconstrained, just how far would he have gone? I don't think we'll ever know. But one of the surprises at the end of the Gulf War in 91 is the revelation of programs that we now think of as weapons of mass destruction or WMD for short. Um, and I say it's a surprise because apparently the West, i.e. European nations and the U.S., were unaware of how far along the Iraqi regime uh, had made it into progressing into bio, biological, chemical, and or nuclear programs. Is that right? Right. Right. So, and so go ahead. Go, no, I was just going to say, and so this this surprise revelation is important for understanding the mental framework of decision makers in the Bush administration, 2000 one to three. And so can you explain how this, these weapons programs uh, were viewed, not just by Bush and his advisors, but brought more broadly? Yeah. So in uh, 1991, when inspectors go in and open the aftermath of the war, they, as you say, they discover, I think there was some appreciation of the, the, the chemical arsenal, uh, the biological arsenal always remains somewhat obscure, but the big revelation was that uh, as they later reported that, um, Saddam may have been uh, within a year of developing uh, 
nuclear weapons by the end of the Gulf War, according to some estimates. And that was much more advanced than uh, most outside analysis, including intelligence agencies had said at the time. So that creates a sense among um, the growing, uh, eventually growing group of uh, anti-Saddam activists that uh, he is capable of making advances well beyond what anybody uh, can detect from the outside. Uh, and that uh, although the two are not, because he was not under you know, the kind of extensive IEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, inspections that he would be later before the war, but still there's this conviction that inspections don't work, that there's no way to get sufficiently robust verification uh, of any uh, kind of arms reduction uh, process uh, given the nature of Saddam's regime. So both it, it creates in the intelligence community, the U.S. intelligence community in particular, this desire not to be made a fool of again. So many intelligence professionals say, you know, that creates a uh, kind of bias in the other direction of not wanting to miss stuff and not taking seriously some of the indications that maybe uh, he had actually paused work on these on these programs as he later did in the 90s. And then among policy folks, as you say, it creates a sense of, uh, you know, this is a threat that as long as this regime is in place, uh, you'll never be able to trust that he won't secretly get to a nuclear weapon. However, of course, uh, it turns out that as far as we know, he, meaning Hussein, did in fact actually at least halt the programs. Did he abandon them altogether in the 90s? So he, essentially the best way to think of it is that he hit a pause button. Um, he said the instructions he gave were to kind of mothball some of the materials, the equipment, and keep the scientists handy, <laughs> keep the knowledge in their minds, and um, be ready to start up again. Uh, but it was, it was not an order to hide the stuff better. It was clearly a decision, as he later relayed, as documents and other officials in the Iraqi regime made clear it was a decision to end active work on these programs. So, uh, yeah, he had, he had essentially hit the pause button. The advocates of war will say that he didn't, he didn't entirely surrender his ambitions. This was not a decision like Gaddafi later made, which was actually a choice to just surrender everything, give it all up in the hope of getting out from under inspections. It was something short of that. But uh, the active work was brought to uh, an end. And when U.S. officials were later in 2001, 2002, 2003, talking about Iraq is making, you know, uh, active moves in this direction, that, that simply was not true by that time. But of course, the great irony is that because Saddam was still afraid of Iran in particular, he refused to broadcast publicly his decision. To, to pause these programs uh, and therefore uh, allowed the misunderstanding to continue to exist in the United States and elsewhere. And I think that's a really important point that you make, which is uh, this is not just uh, a history of how the U.S. viewed everything or how the West viewed it, but you're trying to also interpret um, Saddam's actions and his his own viewpoint. And so he's he's scared, essentially, like all dictators, um, he's fearful of looking weak in his neighborhood. 
Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. And as I say, particularly in regard to to Iran, um, I don't think he considered, you know, the, the Gulf states or at that time wasn't imminently thinking of, certainly in the mid-90s, of U.S. action. Although, you know, uh, the United States was uh, in the mid and late 90s attempted at least two major coup efforts against him was uh, running the northern and southern watch, no-fly zones, had sanctions in place, uh, and by the late 90s was very explicitly calling for regime change. Um, so there's no doubt that he's trying to balance getting out from under sanctions and still maintaining enough of a, a, a deterrent in the minds of his potential enemies. Um, are there also domestic... Uh, enemies that he's worried about in in terms of maintaining this bravado against the West. So yeah, I mean his 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 top concern is as as you say as always with uh, authoritarian regimes, his top security concerns are always domestic. He's always more afraid of uh, domestic uprisings as a route to losing power than he is about external threats. In fact, right up to the brink of war uh, in in March two thousand three, he he still is more worried about uprisings among the Shia than he is about uh, U.S. military action. So it's not so much, um, you know, by the mid-90s, he's uh, largely, at least as far as we know in the open literature, he's pretty much cleansed his actual regime of potential rivals, which is one of the problems the U.S. faces in the sense that there just aren't, uh, there's no second in command who we can grab and try to make the basis of a coup to get him out of power who's willing to challenge Saddam. But in terms of, I mean, this is a, you know, a minority uh, Sunni government, obviously sitting on top of a, a majority Shiite population. And then with the Kurds in the North with significant American backing, uh, it's a country that's constantly threatening to fly apart. In the aftermath of the first Gulf War, there were major uprisings uh, among the Shia that if the United States had intervened even a little bit to prevent Saddam's use of some of his air power, um, might have been much more dangerous to his regime. When the United States conducts the, the Desert Fox strikes in 1998, um, there are different reports. Saddam later boasted that it wasn't a big deal, but there was some evidence at the time that it was shaking his regime to the core. So yeah, he's always obsessed with domestic security. So before we get to the Bush administration at this early stage, um, what we've discussed and what you've written about in, in the first uh, chapter here is essentially the 1990s pre-Bush. One of the key criticisms of the Iraq war in 2003 was that there was no uh, post-war planning for security or what's going to happen and afterwards and replace the existing regime. And so I want to get to that when we talk about the Bush administration, but I, I thought it was notable that early in the 1990s, um, this problem predates it too. In other words, the first Bush administration, there was no post-war planning after the Gulf War, really, uh, right. in case Hussein fell. And throughout the Clinton administration, when there is an obvious desire, uh, especially in 1998 after Iraq refuses to continue admitting UN inspectors, there's this desire uh, for a coup to happen. There's, you know, in the U.S. potentially will render some kind of aid uh, to uh, uh, any coup plotters, there's no post-war, post-coup planning there either. And so can you explain, this is a theme that you develop throughout the book in terms of planning 
and the importance of it. But early on, pre-Bush administration, uh, pre-George W. Bush administration, there's this concern and obvious phenomenon of only seeing the horizon, but not what's beyond it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's a good way to put it. Um, and it's, you know, I don't know if it's, I, I think that unless the United States is engaged in a, uh, a global all-out war as in World War II, I mean, World War II, in the Iraq case, they, they initially named some of the post-war planning the military is doing, Eclipse II, to, as, to hark back to the eclipse planning that went on in World War II. That started a good couple of years before the end of um, but obviously it's a very different kind of conflict. And in a lot of these cases in the 90s, whether we're going into Somalia or Haiti or Panama, uh, the Balkans even, uh, there's, you know, part of it is I think a lot of these contingencies arise uh, in, a, in a sudden and urgent way. And one of the interesting aspects of these, even including Iraq, is that a couple of years before they happen, if you ask most senior officials or, you know, foreign policy experts in Washington, is the United States going to invade country X? Their answer is that would be kind of nutty. There's no way we would do that right now. So there's not a sense of an ongoing need to plan for any kind of a post-conflict situation. And then by the time the imperative arises and people feel a need to uh, start thinking about it, uh, it's so late and, and the system is rushing so quickly to get the actual military operation together, there's no headspace left to be thinking about the post-war. So I think it's a, it's a general problem for the U.S. Um, use of force in these cases. Um, and in the Iraq case, you know, right up until even when the Clinton administration was thinking more actively about regime change, it was never about a U.S. invasion. And so... Part of the reason there, too, is that the idea that the United States was going to be responsible for this in a way that would require U.S. planning, I mean, that wasn't even in Don Rumsfeld's mind at the time of the invasion. He hoped we were going to get in and get out very quickly. So um, there, it, it's, it's a recurring problem when the United States ultimately conceives of military action in a rush because of some imperative that arises uh, and and has not taken the time in advance to really think about okay well what would this look like on the on the back end? All right, so let's uh, move on to the beginning of the Bush administration. You devote a discussion to the pre nine eleven uh, policy disposition toward Iraq. Um, essentially, what was the posture of the Bush administration prior to nine eleven regarding Iraq? So. Uh, I guess the, the regarding Iraq, the best answer is the best term is confused uh, or fragmented. Um, the big focus in so there's there's a clear sense, uh, and this comes out, for example, in Paul O'Neill's book where he goes to the first NSC meeting and they're saying, let's talk about the threat Iraq poses and what are we going to do about it. And to someone who hasn't been involved in Iraq policy, that sounds like they're getting ready to go after Iraq. Well, the United States have been getting ready to go after Iraq for years. And the discussions they're having at the beginning of the Bush administration are pretty much exactly the discussions they were having at the end of the Clinton administration, which is the sanctions are degrading and more and more outside companies, European and other, are starting to do business with Iraq. And we're worried that he's going to slide out from under sanctions. We believe that his WMD work is continuing. We believe that he remains uh, an aggressive threat to the region. 
Uh, our no-fly zones in northern and southern Iraq are very expensive. They pose a continual risk to U.S. Uh, flyers. And all of this means that the U.S. policy toward Iraq was not necessarily sustainable. And that was agreed upon across the political spectrum by almost everybody who studied Iraq. The question then was, what are you going to do about it? And there was also a relative bipartisan consensus by that time that the only thing to really ultimately solve this problem is a change of the regime. As, as the book argues, you know, at the end of the Clinton administration, they had already gotten to that, to that place as well. But without the catalyst of 9-11, uh, there, there simply isn't a sense that using U.S. military force to make this happen in the form of a big invasion is something that's reasonable to contemplate. So the first nine months of the Bush administration is, is sort of two big processes on Iraq. One is discussing this idea of smart sanctions, trying to make the sanctions regime more permanent by narrowing it to militarily relevant capabilities and making sure that you can keep an international agreement to that. And then the other part is there are definitely uh, a group of officials, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, Doug Feith, Rumsfeld to a degree, uh, Cheney to a degree, although his involvement at the beginning isn't, isn't that clear, who believe that the United States needs to take much more active measures to get Saddam out of power. Again, that's exactly where many of the Clinton administration, NSC, Middle East folks had, had got to at the end of that administration. So they're looking at various covert, clandestine, other kinds of means of destabilizing Saddam's regime. That didn't add up to a coherent policy or strategy, really, apart from kind of hit him harder, and try to make the sanctions work better. And so by 9-11, pretty much everybody I talked to said the essential situation is that uh, there, there's not a lot of clarity on where we were heading in regard to Iraq. So let me ask you to step aside from the historian role that you're playing at this point. And pre-9-11, what do you think, and just this is your own personal opinion, what do you think the U.S. should have been doing in regard to Iraq? Obviously, other yeah. than the obvious is thinking about it more, but uh, right. in terms of, you, you think back to the, the idea of post-change, post what do you want to replace the bad regime? Um, as you mentioned, uh, these are well-experienced uh, people in both the Clinton administration and the Bush, uh, the George W. Bush administration. Um, they're not fools. Uh, they've been around Washington for a long time. They've been around foreign policy issues for a long time. So it's no surprise to them that there might be, or it shouldn't be, any surprise to them that uh, a new regime may resemble the old regime or... Um, you know, there might be problems going forward, but it doesn't seem as if anyone's discussing this. So um, in light of the experience that had been uh, understood to have occurred in the 90s from the Bush perspective, what should they have been doing in pre-9-11? Well, I think, um, so uh, there's kind of two questions there, both of which are interesting. One is what should they have been doing? And the other is what would a different policy look like? I think in terms of what they should have been doing, it's, it would have been uh, a couple of things at least. One is being much more rigorous about information gathering and being absolutely diligent about getting the most accurate picture possible of what was going on inside Iraq, what Saddam's intentions were, 
what the status of his WMD programs were. Um, just as an example, as I argue in the book, every time uh, in the Bush administration, a senior intelligence official briefed the WMD intelligence, the reaction was, gee, that's all there is? I thought that the case was really you know, airtight. Why isn't there better information? And there was ample kind of indications that should have caused someone to say, get a little team together and look into this so that we're sure we really know what's going on and we're not exaggerating it. Also, in terms of the status of Iraqi society and a variety of other things, they should have had a much better sense of what was going on. In terms of, uh, I mean, another thing they should have been doing was looking for more policy options. And in that regard, the key assumption to question was the necessary regime change assumption. Um, in retrospect, I think an alternative policy would have been to ramp up pressure of some kind on Saddam, and we could have gotten significant uh, international support for this. I mean, part of the answer to your question is, what would have been the alternative policy before 9-11 and after 9-11? Because after 9-11, it was going to be more confrontational no matter what you did. But the basic shape of it, I think, could have been the same, which is essentially a policy of uh, managing and mitigating Iraq's WMD progress and deterring Iraqi aggression of any kind or a kind of elaborate WMD um, uh, deployments. So I think the, the essential alternative policy is to say we'd love regime change at some point and we will continue to work for that. You know, if we want to uh, just have discussions with uh, free Iraqis who want a new future, if there's opportunities at different times to uh, kind of support alternative political forces within Iraq, that's something we might do. But we don't expect that to bear fruit soon, and the basis of the policy is that we have to live with Iraq. We, we cannot have a policy predicated on short-term regime change because we just don't know if that's possible. So living with Iraq would then mean two big pieces. One is getting an international consensus together and making demands on Iraq to have uh, uh, much more uh, elaborate uh, nuclear inspections. Of course, at different times, um, Saddam kicks the inspectors out and decides that uh, he's not getting relief from sanctions out of this process. Um, but to have sufficient inspections to be able to be sure that you're keeping a cap on the program and then have a basic policy of deterrence, which is the reason why he attacked Kuwait in 1990 was not because the United States had a policy of deterrence and it's impossible to deter Saddam. It's because we didn't deter him because the U.S. ambassador, having no alternative instructions, walked in to see him and said, you know, the official policy of the U.S. government is we take no position on the territorial disputes that you have with your neighbors. If there had been, prior to August 1990, uh, U.S. forces on the ground in Kuwait, as there were afterwards and as there are now, if there had been a clear U.S. deterrent threat, that any Iraqi aggression into Kuwait would have been met with immediate U.S. response, then he never would have done that, uh, as he didn't with Saudi Arabia and as Iraq, as he didn't uh, afterwards in the 90s. Um, so... I think that the basic approach could have been deterrence, backed by a very significant international consensus. It would always have been imperfect. The inspections regime would never have given us an absolute guarantee against what he was doing. 
But combined with sufficient intelligence, I think we would have been able to get to a point where we could have said, you know, he could secretly be developing certain capabilities, but very much unlike North Korea today, if Iraq ever started to deploy ballistic missiles that we worried would have nuclear weapons on the top, we could have just taken them out and we could have had a policy to do that. So I think the basic alternative approach would have been one grounded in deterrence and long-term regime change or regime mellowing or even offering Saddam some kind of a, a grand bargain to get out of sanctions if he accepts certain new conditions. But in the meantime, it's essentially a policy of deterrence. Okay. And so uh, 9-11 happens in 2001. And in my understanding is that very quickly, the intelligence community, especially the CIA, uh, national security uh, officials inform the president uh, that this must be Al Qaeda, and yeah. and so Al Qaeda becomes publicly, obviously, the initial focus. Uh, we start quickly sending uh, special forces into Afghanistan, and that becomes the public focus. But privately, and this is what your book is primarily concerned with. It's not concerned with Afghanistan, really. Uh, but rather uh, the policy planning for Iraq. Uh, what is in some ways shocking uh, on 9-11 itself, 9-11-2001, the day of the uh, attacks, uh, Rumsfeld himself is very much concerned with Iraq. So can you explain this immediate concern with Iraq? Yeah, so it, it primarily stems, I think, from a conception that had arisen uh, among certain, not just Republican or conservative former officials, then current officials, foreign policy analysts, but primarily there, that um, the United States confronted a kind of international network of evildoers who were conspiring against America. So this idea that quickly comes out of terrorists and the states that support them, state-supported terrorism, is based on work by folks like this analyst, uh, Lori Mallory and uh, others, and a number of those, uh, a number of uh, kind of bureaucrats in the Defense Department who quickly get to work after 9-11, creating these maps of international terrorist conspiracies that see this as an integrated threat. And in the days and weeks after 9-11, you have folks like Paul Wolfowitz saying there's no way that Al-Qaeda could have pulled off something like this on its own. Uh, they have to be the proxy or the agent of bigger uh, actors. So there's this mindset, uh, for one thing, that there's a network of, uh, of terrorists and states working together against the United States. Uh, and then that's combined with a sense that after eight years of the Clinton administration, which a lot of these conservatives saw as weak, as not uh, demonstrating American credibility adequately, it was time to re-educate the world about the credibility of American power. Rumsfeld actually writes Bush uh, a note uh, before, I think, the inauguration where he says, uh, or maybe immediately after, where he says, you know, when we get into to power, I can tell you that a crisis of some sort will come. And when it does, just know that I am going to be uh, advocating a very strong response. He's implying 
it, almost a response that goes too far uh, in order to, to convey messages about American power and American credibility. So it's a combination of a belief about a global network of evildoers and the need to uh, potentially strike back not only at those who actually conduct the attack, but at other targets to convince the world of American power that I think essentially immediately implants Iraq in the minds of many senior officials after those attacks. So this is not uh, really an irrational reaction, it seems. In other words, um, state sponsorship, uh, certainly that's what Afghanistan is. It's a failed state that became uh, this uh, new messianic state under the Taliban, and they are a state sponsor in terms of providing safe haven. So, so was before that Sudan, right? Uh, for Al Qaeda. So it's, yeah, I guess it depends on how you define irrational. I mean, I think. Um, well, what I meant was, there, there are, I just meant irrational in the sense that uh, there's this immediate concern with, uh, based on what they knew at the time, um, yes, there are these terrorist groups like Al Qaeda. But at the same time, they don't know the extent to which they might be uh, beneficiaries of some type of funding or organizational infrastructure that a state could provide. Well, they, so they had sources of information on that. I mean, uh, so, yeah, it, it, Afghanistan, the Taliban regime is a, a state sponsor of a sort. But as you imply, more passive support than active support, really. And quite frankly, I mean, there are Taliban leaders today who say one of their biggest mistakes was not turning over the t- turning over Al Qaeda on 9/12. It'd be a fascinating counterfactual to go back and imagine if if their answer was actually, yeah, you know, our our vision of Islam does not imply this sort of attacks on on innocence, and we're gonna we're gonna round these guys up and turn them over to immediately. That would have <laughs> presented the Bush administration with an interesting challenge. But the intelligence community very quickly comes back. And um, to the United States uh, and uh, the, the, the UK government and other governments um, and, and tells them uh, that uh, the, um, the case for large scale state sponsorship is simply inaccurate, um, that the, the Iraq is not supporting Al Qaeda in significant ways. Uh, there's not an operational nexus between the two, um, and uh, that that argument is just blown out of proportion. So senior officials should have known, and some did know, and there were some at the time who were saying, um, in fact, uh, as the book lays out, some of the military folks who were involved in the early planning to put together what became the global campaign plan for the war on terror were start, you know, looked at the intelligence and said, uh, this idea of a global network of state sponsors there are little bits and pieces to which it's true, and we should deal with those as they exist. But as a general theme, it's just not true. It's just a, a view of the world that is not based in evidence. It's based in kind of an ideological uh, sense that had been uh, developed. So, uh, yeah, I think there was definitely a way that they could and should have been able to step back from that view and that it was based more in ideology than evidence. So also, uh, you note the Defense Policy Board, um, only a few days after 9-11, around the 18th of September of 2001, they talk about themselves, Iraq. And um, so 
do you see the, and this is supposed to be an independent group of advisors to the government. Um, are they ideologically oriented themselves or is this a sufficiently diverse intellectually and uh, viewpoint diverse group of people that it's, um, you know, there's some credence here to this concern about Iraq, not necessarily the express connection, which you've already noted the intelligence community dismissed between Al Qaeda and Iraq, but rather just the concern about Iraq as an aggressive potential state sponsor. Yeah. So I think the, the part of the aspect of the, the defense policy board is, I mean, all of those defense policy board, defense science board, the, those kind of advisory boards are always composed of a bipartisan set of people with all kinds of different so it's not uh, the the what happens at that meeting is not necessarily the defense policy board issues a report or or you know later issues a report saying uh, kind of endorsing a certain view of Iraq, but that at that meeting is just an example of where certain individuals are in terms of their views of things, and it's an example of how this. Uh, emerging view that essentially we have to go big in the war on terror rather than small, that just taking out Afghanistan is not sufficient, that uh, there are other significant individuals who are influential in the administration's thinking that are at that meeting and talking about that theme. It's not so much about the Defense Policy Board as an institution, you know, aligning itself with that. So returning to Saddam Hussein's view, um, ironically, after 9-11, Hussein uh, thought that perhaps the U.S. would view him as a natural ally. Can you ex explain yeah. this uh, disposition? So he, and he had had right n numerous times. He'd um, you know, as we remember in the in the 1990s, the United States eventually comes on this idea of dual containment. But um, for a while before the first Gulf War we view him as a potential uh, counterweight against Iran. And in as late as uh, really probably nine months or so before the Gulf War, U.S. officials are communicating with the Iraqis, even going to Baghdad, talking about how uh, there might be opportunity that we're talking about sort of agricultural trade and are there opportunities to uh, do things together if there's, you know, official documents of U.S. government that make clear through these discussions that the U.S. is telling Saddam that it is the it is the policy of the U.S. government to develop better relations with the regime. And he sees himself as the natural leader uh, in the Arab world. And so he sort of figures that a partnership here between the world superpower and the regional superpower, as he views himself, could be could make a lot of sense. Um, so he uh, approaches the United States at various times um, to try to set up this kind of partnership. Once he invades Kuwait in 1990 in ways that he doesn't fully understand, um, he really uh, ends the potential for that. And there's, you know, as I quote in the book, there's this really almost poignant scene from one of the interviews with him where he kind of buries his head in his hands and says, that just gives me a headache thinking about the Gulf War, you know, and, and the implication I think is clear that he realizes that if he was ever going to have better relations with the United States and, and eventually uh, avoid the end of his regime, that he, he ruined the chance with that action. Um, but yeah, he's repeatedly tried to approach the United States. And so one of his reactions at 9-11 is uh, these Islamic extremists have been a threat to my regime as well. 
I always thought of them as a domestic threat. And so this is an opportunity for the United States and us to collaborate in their destruction. Now, one of the complications is that there is a story published in an Iraqi paper just after 9-11, essentially congratulating al-Qaeda on the attack against the United States. And Saddam, in captivity, insists that one of his sons placed that story, that he had no knowledge of it, and that he, in fact, separately uh, indicated that he disapproved of the attack and offered his condolences or whatever. But it's the United States' view after 9-11 that Iraq is about the only country in the world that actually took the side of al-Qaeda, uh, that almost everybody else, you know, Russia, China, the whole world was telling the United States that they legitimately offered sincere condolences and Iraq celebrated the attack. Saddam insists that he didn't do that, but that's another kind of nail in the coffin of any opportunity for Saddam to convince the United States that they could be they could be partners of any kind. All right. So almost immediately after 9-11, you document how certain advisors, all the way from Rumsfeld down to others um, in the administration, were concerned with Iraq in addition to Afghanistan and al-Qaeda. And so there is this push among senior advisors to gain the president's attention and shift it to considering and promoting some type of more aggressive policy toward Iraq. Um, I thought it was notable that Bush really, uh, to his credit, suggests, listen, one problem at a time. That's essentially his literal response at different points. Right. Um, So- you you document uh, you assess this history by utilizing some uh, psychological viewpoints. You talk about Johnson and Tyranny's article regarding the concept of crossing the Rubicon. Uh, can you explain right. that and how that's helpful in understanding what's going on? Yeah, so there our article in uh, the journal International Security makes the contention that um, on the road to war. There's a critical psychological threshold that senior leaders cross where they have decided that war is inevitable, uh, whether because they have decided that they have to wage it or the other side is going to wage it or uh, factors involved in the situation are making it inevitable. Uh, and once and, and their argument is that uh, national policies uh, shift significantly once leaders are across that threshold. Once you've decided that war is happening, then looking at warnings about the risks of war or taking actions to mitigate the risk or a lot of the kinds of things that make sense when you're still not sure kind of fade into the background. And a critical point they make that I found very much in evidence here, although in, in a lot of minds it's explicit, that transition can happen unconsciously, that even without a formal discussion, people sitting around a table and saying, okay, we've now decided that this war is going to happen, implicitly, senior officials can be sort of in the mindset of thinking, okay, this is, this is going to happen. And what I found interesting in this case was because within hours or days of 9-11 in the minds of so many senior officials, and I think even although Bush said one thing at a time a few days after 9-11, he also very much appears within those first couple of weeks to have decided that Saddam is going to have to be taken care of. 
however that happens. Um, and, and I think in his own mind, he believe, he still hopes that it could happen without war, but he believes that, in essence, a confrontation is inevitable. Uh, that's true of Rumsfeld, Cheney, Wolfowitz, many other senior officials. So they've crossed this threshold. And what's uh, fascinating and depressing from that point forward is that there's really, I mean, as, as is widely known, there's never actually a meeting where they sit down and say, the president says, okay, let's decide if going to war with Iraq makes sense. They never have a meeting where they sit down to discuss that. Uh, it becomes an implicit conviction. And also, there are discussions of kind of the mechanics of war. How do we make this work or that work? But apart from a couple of really unimpressive laundry lists of what could go wrong, those who warn about risks from that point forward are largely ignored. And I think part of the reason is the leaders have gotten into this mental position of believing, well, we have to do this. We're going to do this. So, yeah, we want to mitigate risks on the margin. But uh, people who say this is dangerous enough that we ought not to do it, that's overtaken by events. That's something we don't need to think about anymore. And so after, um, after these discussions began um, and this Rubicon is crossed psychologically, it seems like uh, there's a couple of, um, and this I guess may sound like pop psychology for me to say this, but it sounds like groupthink takes hold and also the problem of confirmation bias. Um, right. And we all suffer from this uh, in our daily lives, right. not just in national security. Um, we, we have certain ways we understand the world, lenses, so to speak, through which we interpret events. Um, in one way, we can forgive anybody for doing this. But once you reach the stage of national security decision making, um, perhaps we should be less forgiving, I suppose. And that's really part of what your book is about is to what degree can we be forgiving for these uh, human frailties versus um, asserting or accusing people of really failing to do something that they were tasked with doing. In other words, doing the job of a national security advisor. Um, And so uh, I want to... Uh, talk about this distinction you make between the formal track for war, which is a necessity in any government versus the informal track. And you talk about these are two tracks in some way it's uh, that are almost completely separate. So can you explain yeah. this concept that you're implementing? Yeah. So by um, uh, the Iraq stays sort of in the background from September 2001 through more or less the end of the year and kind of going into the beginning of the next year, the, there, there starts to be a very secretive uh, principal level, so top-level series of interagency meetings um, by the beginning of 2002, uh, and it, but it's not till that spring that a, a wider interagency process kicks off. But when it does, it becomes this formal track, which is to say um, a series of meetings designed to discuss, well, if we were to go to war, how would we handle this? How would we get, you know, Turkey on board? How would we plan for a possible humanitarian disaster? How would we think about the diplomatic issues of allies and all that sort of stuff? And the it, it's formal in the sense that it is a series of deputies committee meetings, of interagency policy meetings below the deputies level, um, some principal level meetings. 
and and so in that sense, it has the form of a, a typical interagency discussion. But a lot of the participants that I talked to talk about how odd it was in so many ways because it was as if they were talking about something that was really being decided in another room, and and then they would be asked, well, this is the direction we're going based on some other decision, so figure out this aspect of it. Uh, but there was never, it did not start with a discussion of, we need a strategy paper for how to handle Iraq post 9-11. It's got to be different. The threat is now obviously more serious. How do we handle it? There was never that initial discussion of having broad-based alternatives that were debated and a debate about whether it made sense to go to war. So the informal policy track is really a series of very ad hoc discussions. Um, and this is a challenge for doing kind of writing history at this point is, and, and probably at any point, you know, we know that there are a bunch of uh, discussions just between Cheney and President Bush during this period. And based on some reporting and some of what Bush has said and some of what Cheney said is a few indications we have, we have a sense of what's going on there. But there's a lot of discussions during this period among some of the most senior officials between Cheney and Rumsfeld, between Cheney and Bush, uh, that we'll never have a documentary record of. And, and none of them probably will ever talk about explicitly. But very clearly, based on the information we do have, such as both Bush and Rumsfeld have talked about, I think, a September 26, 2001 meeting uh, between uh, Bush and Rumsfeld, where Bush says, uh, start planning on Iraq, do it quietly, um, and, and kind of keep it secretive, but we're going to have to do something about this. So there's that informal series of discussions based on the emerging assumption that we're going to do something decisive about Iraq that is producing this kind of implicit decision. There's the formal track of interagency meetings that never has real access to those uh, and is being asked to discuss secondary issues. And they eventually sort of merge when it becomes more clear to more people that a decision has been made. But as I talk about in the book, you know, in a lot of cases, particularly for folks at state, but even for some people at the NSC, uh, that comes as somewhat of a surprise that the informal track is much further along in making a concrete decision than they would have assumed. So I think this concept, um, as you explain it, is, quote unquote, easy enough to understand, uh, formal, informal. My inter interpretation as a reader was, uh, before I got to the end of the book, so allow me to explain my framework uh, of understanding this. As I read along, I thought, okay, this informal track sounds like it's really the policymaking this is where the real decisions are being made, quote unquote, the, the ones that will really carry the day. Uh, and give the walking, marching orders to people. Um, and the career professionals are the ones that are in the formal track. And so they're the ones that are responsible for what may seem like minutiae, but are ultimately very important things about conducting the war uh, or planning for it. But uh, that puts a lot of responsibility on this smaller set of policy people uh, in the Defense Department and um, national security um, at cabinet level as well. But then as we get into the lead up to the war, even though there's no clear point where everybody understands Bush has decided we are going to war, 
there's still these very public proclamations. Uh, State of the Union Address, even in 2002, the State of the Union Address. Uh, now, by 2003, with the State of the Union Address, it's very clear that we're going to war. But even with all these public pronouncements, which could clue in anybody who's just paying attention to the news, oddly enough, and I'm jumping way ahead here in the interest of time, this uh, formal track seems horrifically ill-prepared for how they're going to manage the immediate post-war security environment and also who's going to run the country, et cetera. And I realize ultimately the responsibility lies with these people at the top, but it seems like even lower down the pyramid, there is some inattentiveness. Is that an accurate interpretation? Yeah, that, that's a great point. I mean, I would say you're, you're kind of making two points that are both very interesting. One is um, during that whole period, I mean, to those who say the American public was hoodwinked and so on, you know, just as you are saying, uh, I mean, I point to starting in January 2002 with that State of the Union address and all throughout, it should have been no surprise to anybody that the administration was moving in this direction. They broadcast it very clearly. They have a very public discussion. There's hundreds of articles in the press saying the United States is getting ready to go to war with Iraq. We eventually have a congressional vote. So this was not sort of hidden. However, uh, the, the, the sort of, and the second point you make is about the inattentiveness of the policy process. And I'll say one thing about that. What joins the two and, and, and the kind of excuse, I think, or the, the reason why people could try to look at what was happening and still not conclude that this was inevitable was the idea that what was going on was coercive diplomacy. And I've even, uh, you know, up till recently, I've heard this from folks who were involved in the, who were in the administration at the time that folks at the State Department, even some folks in the SC and elsewhere were imagining to themselves, okay, what's going on is we're, the, the, the president is, is broadcasting that the United States is getting ready to go to war to create coercive leverage with Saddam. So he's going to get better inspections. He's going to make the world really afraid. The United States can do something crazy. And therefore, all these folks will be much more supportive of tough enforcement of sanctions, but also of new inspections than they would be otherwise. And then we eventually won't go to war, but we will have achieved this clever. And even in, in Condi Rice's, uh, Condoleezza Rice's memoir, she discusses how she has, she has this uh, conversation with President Bush where they talk about the concept of coercive diplomacy and Bush says, yeah, that she kind of explains the IR theory, the international relations theory of it. And he says, yeah, that's what I have in mind. So there was a way to believe that what was going on was posturing and that war was not yet inevitable. Having said that, part of the problem for the professionals that were working uh, the preparations was that a lot of this was simply not directed by anybody. Um, and here I really lay fault at, uh, at Rice, at Rumsfeld, to an extent at Powell, who was not as, who was more hands-off on this than he could have been, they took the attitude till very late, either that they didn't have to start this stuff because it was course of diplomacy, or in the case of Rumsfeld, making a public argument that to start post-war planning would signal that the United States was really intent on war, uh, which of course it was. Um, and so they didn't give orders. So as you see in the book, there's a lot of cases where folks at USAID, folks at the State Department, 
folks in the interagency, even when Rice creates kind of a second uh, NSC-based planning group, they're doing this on their own initiative. The president has not said, okay, we might go to war, so let's prepare for the aftermath. People who have experience with this are saying, if we go to war, the aftermath is going to be a disaster, so we need to figure this out. Um, and that's a very different thing. And it partly accounts for why the process is so fragmented and haphazard, because there's no central organizing direction that says we need to be prepared for this. So in the interest of time, I want to uh, move on to some uh, interpretive questions where you talk about lessons. Um, The... Case study that you've provided, uh, as you yourself know, and this is what your last chapter in the book is devoted to, in its entitled "Lessons," is uh, that we can learn from this in terms of how to conduct foreign policy in the future. And uh, I want you—I want to ask some uh, add-on questions about this interpretation. But what are the key lessons that you think? Um, any foreign policy uh, advisor and or public official all the way up to the president, what what should Iraq be an object lesson in? So I'd say for uh, two, two sets of lessons, one for, as you say, for senior officials and one for the country as a whole. For senior officials, I think the key lesson is uh, the importance of, of effective process and testing, even policy ideas, and in fact, especially policy ideas that seem obvious to you, that seem like the only responsible solution. It is critically important to test those uh, with some of the sort of conditions that I lay out there in the last chapter of gathering all of the uh, available information and perspectives that you can, uh, examining every potential uh, policy option in great detail, Uh, And really being rigorous about uh, not falling into the trap of motivated reasoning and deciding, uh, foreclosing thought by immediately deciding that a given policy is the only thing that makes sense. And so therefore, we don't need to look that carefully at the risks or the costs or the evidentiary basis for it. So that importance of process is the first lesson. And it is the same lesson that comes out of every disaster like this in American foreign policy. It's uh, kind of the same set of symptoms that emerge. And then for the country, I think the biggest lesson is that there are some uh, consistent hallmarks of a, the road to a foreign policy tragedy that we, we, we as citizens and as members of Congress, as members of the media, that we can be attentive to um, in terms of uh, things like the, the establishment of a general public narrative that uh, makes it seem like a certain option is uh, the only possible outcome in terms of the arising of an imperative, uh, the, the broadcasting of a clever scheme to conduct a war at allegedly low cost. So there are certain uh, kind of symptoms or hallmarks we can look for that give us a sense that we're on the road to a tragedy. So between those two things, Iraq, as Vietnam did before, as the Bay of Pigs did before, as 
uh, U.S. foreign policy tragedies historically have done, they provide us with the raw material to both as an administration and as a country do our best to avoid these kind of tragedies. So ever since the beginning of the U.S. as a nation state, there has been this traditional dilemma between, on the one hand, we are a self-governing people. Our future is in our hands, meaning, quote unquote, the people's hands in a broad sense. Uh, the people and who were the decision makers has broadened over time uh, in terms of the franchise. But there's uh, been this countervailing fear that even the founders had about what they termed in their parlance mobocracy, right? Mm. And so this traditional fear of mobocracy, it seems to me, rears its head whenever um, foreign intervention is planned, whether it's reactive, defensive, or um, uh, preemptive. And on the one hand, I'm not talking about national security issues. In other words, things you need to keep private for national security purposes. What I'm talking about is um, the wisdom of the foreign intervention as a whole. It seems that leaders praise democracy on the one hand, but at the same time, they fear the public and they fear telling the public the truth as they understand it. Um, do you think that, that this dilemma continues to exist? Um, was it present in the Iraq example? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think in the sense of, just as you're saying, uh, you know, as you know, it's a classic problem in American foreign policy. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt schemed, uh, lied, exaggerated um, certain events to shape public opinion to bring the United States to the point where it could participate in uh, defeating uh, the Nazi menace and then eventually Japanese militarism because he thought it was the right thing to do. And in retrospect, in historical terms, most Americans would probably agree with him. And we don't consider him to be a uh, you know war-seeking adventurist uh, in the sense that uh, he was trying to uh, bring the nation to an unjustified war. So this basic idea, which I think what we know more than anything is that Dick Cheney helped this by the time he becomes vice president, which is that senior leaders in the American government have to, based on their own judgment and their own information, decide what's right for the country and make it happen. Uh, that the, the task is not to kind of wait on public opinion. There's a certain truth to that. I mean, it, it, it's been true throughout U.S. history. There are certainly cases where uh, eventually we decide that it was the right thing for a senior leader to do, whether a Lincoln or a, an FDR. Um, and it's just a, 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 one of the most intensely difficult challenges, I think, in figuring out the lessons of cases like this to try to come up with criteria that allow you to distinguish between those cases where it's acceptable. I mean, to put it bluntly, it's acceptable for American leaders to lie and scheme and cheat their country into a war in times when it isn't. Because I don't think the answer is black and white, that it's never right or never wrong. Um, and so it's just a tremendously difficult question to, to answer in any kind of a, 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 a universal or, or um, you know, 
uh, consistent way. But also, I guess uh, part of my implicit point is this is a problem that's not solvable. In other words, if you if you've got a self governing populace that governs through the mechanism of elections, et cetera. I mean, you could also put people on trial, I suppose. But um, if you've got a self-governing populace, you're always going to have this concern about how much truth uh, they can take, so to speak. Absolutely. It is unsolvable. And so it's, you know, so I think that that gets to your earlier question, which is knowing that the first obligation, and this is one of the reasons why I, I make such a case for this idea of negligence policy negligence and associated with criminal negligence in the last chapter, which is that given that what you're saying is absolutely true, that magnifies the responsibility of senior leaders to make sure that their internal deliberations are as rigorous as possible, because if they are going to substitute their judgment and in a representative democracy, after all, it's kind of what we're telling them to do. If they're going to substitute their judgment uh, for the body politic, they better make damn sure that that judgment is as well informed and rigorously tested as possible. Uh, the uh, historian Neil Ferguson uh, suggested a few years ago that presidents need to have, uh, just like to have a council of economic advisors, they need a council of historical advisors. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, when I initially uh, read that, I thought, well, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and that could be really useful. And the idea is that it's, uh, you're trying, it's kind of similar to the defense policy board concept. You're not going to, um, uh, just have group think that hopefully you'll have differing perspectives on all kinds of issues. Um, but it seems to me that another endemic, perhaps unsolvable problem that relates both to infrastructure within the U.S. decision-making apparatus of national security, but also to psychology is, uh, it reminds me of the title of this book on financial crises that Ken Rogoff and Carmen uh, Reinhart wrote a few years ago uh, in their title, This Time is Different. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so you can always have, you could have a council of historical advisors that remind you of Panama and uh, the first Gulf War, et cetera. But invariably there's always the, well, this time is different. Uh, and so it seems to me that this may be another perhaps, you know, unsolvable problem. Uh, I don't know how you address, you know, the, the idea that, well, the history isn't, is instructive. Uh, and so it seems to me there's a dilemma with trying to draw lessons because you're always going to have the fact that, uh, there are differences this time. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, for one thing, it's not just history that is an alternative perspective, right? There's other there's access to current information. I think, you know, so in my last chapter, I make an argument uh, for some kind of a similar body, some sort of a national commission that you might establish. But uh, on an ongoing basis, I mean, something like the Defense Policy Board meets a couple times a year, a few times a year, and produces occasional reports um, that are that are given to the Secretary of Defense. My thought was. Because one of the the lessons of the Iraq case, as with so many of these cases, is that you do inevitably, and it's a human thing, it's not uh, sort of the failing of any particular group of people, but in in cabinet-level groups of senior officials, you inevitably have a significant degree of groupthink, self-protection, and lack of candor that is going to exist. That is just a human thing. And for a president to be able to get, I mean, as you were sort of suggesting earlier in terms of the post-war planning, there was ample evidence for people to have to be able to walk into the president and say, look, even if you think this is a great idea, you have to know that we are not ready to do this. 
and the reassurances you are getting from people are wrong. And just as an example, you know, one of the cases that I describe in there, I think it was in January of 2003, maybe even later, when Condoleezza Rice sort of tentatively raises the problem of post-war security in a, in a war cabinet meeting. General Tommy Franks, the Central Command commander, immediately says, oh, I've got these Lord Mayors set up for all the towns and cities, and we, we got it handled, Mr. President. And the problem with that is, in that kind of an environment, once the uh, commanding general has told the president, we've got it, it is extraordinarily difficult at that point for almost any of the other senior officials to go back to the president and say, ah, he didn't really mean it, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, they're really putting their career on the line at that point to do that. So my argument is, uh, wouldn't, could it be valuable to have a standing group of people who agree to come into essentially the administration for a year, two, three years, and serve on a small group of historians, but also who are policy experts and, and others, whose job it is simply to constantly marinate in all of the information uh, coursing around the administration and give alternative perspectives. Now, the trick is that totally depends on the mindset of a president, as every national security process does. So if you have a president who is really interested and, and not so concerned about uh, harming the sensitivities of cabinet members who would oppose this thing to their dying breath, and is determined to get the best perspectives possible and use that group for what it's intended, it could potentially work and, and, and contribute something along the lines of Neil Ferguson's Council of Historians. But it's not every president that uh, would be interested in that kind of a mechanism. There have been examples in the past of so-called red team, blue team exercises, right? Sure, but not sort of at this level, I think, and not... Um, it, you know, red teaming, there's a whole literature on red teaming and having participated in some uh, that examined uh, certain ongoing wars at high levels. Uh, it, it's very, very, again, it comes back to the appetite. You know, like if there's, if, if they are a routine um, kind of bureaucratic activity, uh, oh, we ought to have a red team on this that might produce a couple of interesting insights. Okay. But you know, one of the few recent examples, I think, that, that shows how in-depth it can go is, uh, you know, uh, described in Bob Woodward's book, Obama's Wars, which I, having been working in the Joint Staff at the time, I think there's some real problems with the objectivity of the sources in that book. But uh, broadly speaking, it lays out a process that President Obama used, which was criticized at the time for being going on too long and being too in-depth, but where he demanded that they interrogate every assumption about the ongoing Afghan war, whether a surge would work or not, look deeply into different policy options. That's an example of a president who has an appetite. Now, part of the problem with that is what it illustrates also is that in some cases there is no good answer. And so the policy he comes up with out of that is this very, very unpopular hybrid of escalating to get more leverage and at the same time setting a deadline for getting out because I think at some level Obama knew that the war couldn't be won in traditional terms. But at least in terms of process, it's an interesting case of a president using the equivalent of a giant red team 
to inform his decision in the best way possible. But if you don't have that appetite, red teams often just don't achieve a lot. Do you think that process worked in the Afghan instance with Obama? Was it helpful? I think it worked. I think it was definitely helpful in the sense of, uh, it, you know, reading the book, I read between the lines and, and think that fairly quickly, he being as smart as he is, he uh, settled on a few big insights that guided his decision making after that uh, in terms of the limits of what force could accomplish. Um, but also, you know, he's under a lot of political pressure He's trying to get out of Iraq. He can't abandon Afghanistan at the same time. So as all presidents do, he's trying to kind of find a, a way in between all the constraints on it. But I think the process appears to have been useful in the sense that he got to a point where, to my argument about negligence in the Iraq case, there's no way in which he was ill-informed about key aspects of this. He made the best compromise policy he thought he could, but he absolutely had his administration run to ground all of the, the different options and the different claims and assumptions that were, that were going on. So in that sense, I think it was very, very useful. And a, a similar process with Iraq could have produced a very Was that process problem. used before Libya? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I do not believe so. I am not as, uh, I don't know as much about that. Everything I know about the Libya case suggests that it's a lot closer to the Iraq case than it is. Yeah, that, that was my, uh, that was a thought lingering in my head. Were there, were there any lessons that the Obama administration drew from Bush um, uh, in terms of how they conducted their national security uh, reviews, which I know is well beyond the scope of your book. It wasn't uh, what you were concerned with. Well, it's interesting. I mean, they're drawing lessons. You know, one of the books that Obama uh, says read apparently and 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 had claims he had his cabinet read, whether they read it or not, or a summary uh, is the Gordon Goldstein book based on the interviews with George Bundy about Vietnam. So, in terms of Afghanistan, Obama is already educating himself about the the Vietnam lessons of trying to fight a counterinsurgency in that way, and then I think the Iraq lessons in terms of the costs of major adventures and uh, the, the risks of bad decision making were very much in everybody's mind. So, but the Libya case is actually a great example, and I and it's interesting that you raise that because certainly there were a lot of critiques of it. But in terms of thinking about it as an example of where they eventually go off the rails and go back to this sense of imperative and something bad is about to happen, we have to act right now. So let's just jump in without really knowing how this is going to turn out and convince ourselves there's a low cost way of. Achieving our objectives, yeah, that's that's much more the Iraq template than it is the, the Obama's worst template. The book is Leap of Faith, Hubris, Negligence, and America's Greatest Foreign Policy Tragedy. We've been joined today by its author, Michael J. Mazar. Mike, thanks so much for joining me on New Books Network. Thanks. I've enjoyed it. It's been a great discussion. <laughs>